Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in partnership with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we're going to review fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. Post-independence India had a big problem. About 40% of its land wasn't, well, India. Instead, this land was in the hands of the princely states, rulers who had signed agreements accepting the rule of the British Empire while getting a relatively free hand to rule their local jurisdictions. And they weren't small. Hyderabad, whose ruler made noise by independence, at least initially, has a larger income than Belgium and was bigger than all but 20 UN member countries. But the power of the princes was so eroded over time that by 1971, then-Prime Minister Indira Gandhi could remove one of the last remaining public privileges of the prince. How did India, and its neighbor Pakistan, win the battle against the princes? John Zabriskie, in his book Dethroned, The Downfall of India's Princely States, explains how New Delhi persuaded, encouraged, and browbeat the princes to accept a future with India. John Zabriskie had worked in India as a foreign correspondent and diplomat. His other books are The House of Jaipur, The Inside Story of India's Most Glamorous Royal Family, and Empire of Enchantment, The Story of Indian Magic, chosen by William Dalrymple as a book of the year. He is also the author of The Shortest History of India. Today, John and I talk about the major players in these negotiations, like Viceroy Mountbatten and Sardar Patel, how they quote-unquote encourage the princely states to join India, and whether any of these princes could really go it alone. So, John, thanks for coming on the show today. You know, maybe it's best to start with asking kind of what the princely states actually were and, you know, how they provided this problem for India and Pakistan in the in the lead up to and immediate aftermath of independence. Yeah, well, the princely states, if, if you looked at a map of the subcontinent in 1947, you would see this jumble of pinks and yellows, the pinks being British India, the yellows being the princely states. And there were 562 of them, which is a mind-boggling number. Uh, And uh, they were scattered across the subcontinent and uh, they covered about two-fifths of the landmass and uh, about a third of the population, some 90 million people lived in these states they were ruled by uh, Hindu kings, often called Maharajas or Rajas, uh, Muslim uh, rulers, Nizams, Nawabs, etc. Uh, and they ranged in size from Hyderabad and Kashmir, which were the size of a, uh, a, a country's Europe, a European country like Belgium, for instance, down to these micro states, of which there were something like three hundred. Some of which were as small as two or three square kilometers, or if you're an American listener, less than a square mile. Uh, sometimes with populations just just in in the dozens or even in the hundreds. So you can imagine the uh, uh, anybody planning the transition, uh, India's transition from uh, uh, colonial rule to independence would have just been. Um, gobsmacked by the complexity that they had to deal with. Because at the time of independence, under the India Independence Act, all of these states, regardless of their size, had the option of joining the new dominion of India or the new dominion of Pakistan, or in fact, um, declaring their independence. So that was a nightmare scenario, particularly for Congress, which was going because uh, post-partition, something like 550 of these states would find themselves within the boundaries of the new India. 
um, and to a lesser extent uh, for the uh, uh, Muslim League in Pakistan, which uh, inherited about uh, 10 of these states. Right. I mean, I, I don't get too much into, into the details, but like I mentioned, I saw mention of one state as a as a zero gun state, which sounds like particularly, uh, yeah. a particularly um, dis, uh, dismissive is the wrong word, but not not a very high status. It doesn't sound no, like. That's right. Yes. No, there, there were. That's right. The British um, organized these states into a uh, they ranked them according to gun salutes and not all of them, of course, um, something like uh, hundred and. 160 or so, and the uh, the largest states, states like uh, Kashmir, Hyderabad, Mysore, Gwalior, and Baroda, were 21 gun salutes, and that ranged down to none gun, nine gun salutes. Um, and uh, but but even even in that ranking, they were far below the. Uh, what the viceroy would get if he arrived in Delhi, he'd get thirty-one gun salutes, thirty-one gun salute. Whereas the um, the king emperor George V or George VI uh, would get a hundred gun salutes. So uh, so that they were quite a way down the pecking order. But uh, it was important for them. It was because these states were extremely status conscious. Uh, they they to, to the point where they would sometimes delay their arrival into Delhi so that uh, you know to so that there'd be a maximum number of people around to hear the thunderous gun salutes that welcomed their royal trains as they poured into Delhi station. Um, you know, I want to start maybe ask about kind of the some of the major players in in these negotiations. Um, particularly, let's start maybe with, with the Indian side. Um, you know, people like like um, Sardar Patel, who uh, in reading the history comes off um, to put it bluntly, comes off as a real hard ass <laughs> in negotiations. Um, so, so who were who were some of the major players on the Indian side? Well, of course, you know, we, yeah, there was uh, Vallabhai Patel, who was uh, who became the deputy prime minister after uh, India became independent. He was also the states minister uh, when the states department, which was tasked with integrating these states into India, was formed in June. Uh, at the end of June 1947, his deputy VP Menon um, is, is an, was another um, important character in this in this uh, in this drama um, um, but but before I talk a little bit more about them we've also got to remember uh, you know Congress leaders like uh, uh, Jawaharlal Nehru and uh, and and of course uh, the attitude of, of uh, Mahatma Gandhi towards the states so Nehru really had a, had an intense dislike of the princes. I mean, and he, and he described the states as sinks of reaction and incompetence and unrestrained autocratic power, sometimes exercised by vicious and degraded individuals. And this is very much uh, uh, an opinion that his mother, sorry, sorry, his daughter, excuse me, his daughter Indira Gandhi uh, inherited um, when uh, she became prime minister in 1967 and, uh, and, and, and um, quickly made uh, uh, a central plank of her policy to get rid of um, the uh, privileges and privy purses that these rulers still enjoyed uh, after independence. Um, Gandhi was also um, uh, quite um, uh, critical of the states. Uh, he admired some of the rulers and some of the, the states. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, Vinayak Damodar uh, 
uh, Savaka, Veer Savaka, who was the father of Hindut- Hindutva, he saw the states as representing the true India. He called them portals to a pure ancient past, and even as a foundation on which a future nation could be launched. Now, I mean, the, the one thing that the states did provide was a, a, a vehicle, a means for Indians to rise up through the ranks. They could, they, could, they, that they, they could. There were opportunities for Indians in these states that Indians would never enjoy in the British ruled parts of India. So they became uh, ministers and duans and advisors and so on. Um, so that that's an important thing to to consider. But um, going back to the to the real the two real main players, um, Vallabhai Patel and uh, V. P. Menon. Um, Patel, uh, he was born in Gujarat, I think around eighteen eighty five. He was the yeah like became the Congress head kicker, if you like. He was uh, you know he 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 was uh, he, he raised money uh, from industrialists to fund the party. He, uh, he became Home Minister in the uh, interim government in the lead-up to independence, and uh, as well as inf- Information and Broadcasting Minister. And um, he, he, he also um, said that, in his opinion, there was no role or possibility for these states to exist alongside an independent India. There had to be... <clears throat> uh, uh, that they would have to accede to a new uh, to, to an independent India, and also to um, you know and, and, and f- to remove these vestiges of autocracy um, uh, from the map of the country. Uh, his his deputy in the states ministry, V. P. Menon, was an ex- was a very interesting character. Um, he was born in Kerala. He uh, uh, famously uh, uh, fled his, 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 his hometown after burning down his school because he had a disagreement with the, um, the headmaster there, um, made his way to Karnataka to the Kolar gold fields. This was as a young a teenager where he got a job working as a coolie doing manual labor in the gold fields. But uh, he, he was smart and, uh, and time and time again he had excuse me, lucky breaks where his British overseers could see that he, you know, he had a knack for uh, for administration, for um, also just, just you know, he, he was a good strategic thinker. So he managed to get um, positions within the bureaucracy of British India, working his way to the top position ever held by an Indian in the Raj as reforms commissioner under three viceroys. That's Linlithgow, Wavell, and then Mountbatten. So this is in the in the three or four years before independence, he had this incredibly important role. So th- that he and Patel were the ones who were charged with um, getting the, the rulers of these disparate hundreds of disparate states to basically uh, sign on the dotted line and accede to India. And it was really a remarkable feat. Um, You mentioned Mountbatten. um, And I think it's important to ask about him too, um, because he uh, clearly had opinions too about about, um, the princely states and their relationship um, to an independent India. So 
Um, what's Mountbatten's role in all of this? Well, Mountbatten became Viceroy in March uh, 1947. Um, he, he was tasked by the then Prime Minister um, Clement Attlee to uh, uh, ensure that there'd be a transfer of power uh, no later than June 1948. Uh, of course, as we know, uh, he um, famously in, in at the beginning of June 1947 pre-poned that uh, uh, transfer of power by something like 10 months and announced totally out of the blue to everybody's surprise it would take place on the 15th of August 1947. Um, so Mountbatten, he was a blue-blooded royal, um, a grandson of Queen Victoria. He um, uh, uh, he knew many of the princes personally uh, on, uh, from previous trips he'd made to India. Also, these rulers travelled extensively, so if they were in, in in England or in Europe, they would also be um, hobnobbing with with you know, royalty and aristocracy there. So Mountbatten got to know several of them quite well. They shared a passion for polo, pig sticking, these sports that the princes excel, excelled in. Um, and so, and he was tasked by uh, uh, the king, uh, um, his cousin, to make sure that uh, he would protect the interests of Britain's most loyal allies, because the princely states were very much seen by the British as a bulwark against the nationalist movement, and they stayed loyal, uh, and, and they had stayed loyal to Britain for, um, you know, you know, much of the um, uh, the, the days in, in, uh, under which India was was a colony of Britain, uh, they they uh, during the mutiny, um, many of them sided with the British against the mutineers, and therefore, as uh, Lord Canning um, said, stemmed this tide of insurgency that would have otherwise overwhelmed India. They uh, provided men and materiel. Uh, uh, you know, to help uh, uh, fight alongside the Allies during both the First and and uh, Second World Wars. In fact, even earlier in the Boer War, I think, uh, it was uh, John, uh, Bikineer that uh, sent troops, uh, Camel Corps, to to, to fight there. Um, so, so that that was his brief, basically. Um, transfer power, but make sure that you keep. Uh, you know, our most loyal allies, the princely states, make sure you, you don't, um, you know, that, 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 you know, they, they, they get, they, they get something out of this as well. Yeah. Don't, don't throw them under the bus. I don't guess. throw them under the bus. And that's what the princes themselves thought. They thought here was, you know, a, 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 an ally, someone who would look after the interests someone who understood them, who, you know, who, who, who they could trust. Um, now the problem was that Mountbatten, uh, had, you know, was, was faced with you know, growing communal unrest, with belligerence between Congress and and um, uh, and, and the Muslim League, growing calls for partition. I mean, India was a mess uh, when he arrived. So he had really very little time to concentrate on uh, the problem of what to do about these princely states. I mean, clearly you could not have a situation at the time of independence where um, the states just did, you know, once the, their treaties with that they had signed with with Britain, the, the paramount power, as it was referred to, had lapsed. They would be technically free free to do anything, um, but this would, of course, just create this balkanization of India. It would, it would unleash chaos on 
on what was an already chaotic situation. Um, but but he didn't really start to address the problem of what to do about the princely states until June uh, 1947, um, when he called together um, you know, representatives of the political department, which was tasked with looking after the states, Menon, sorry, not Menon, Patel, um, um, Jinnah and, uh, and uh, some of the other uh, key players in, 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 um, in, in, in the pre-independence uh, scenario. And, uh, and, and the outcome of that meeting on the 13th of June was the formation of a states department headed by Patel and Menon. Um, and that was tasked, and, and there, there was there were two branches: a, pa- a Pakistani branch and an Indian branch. Um, and then on the twenty uh, fifth of July, which is just three weeks before the transfer of power, he finally convened a session of the Chamber of Princes. This was a body that was to, that had was formed in uh, nineteen twenty one and represented the princes. It wasn't a particularly effective body, but anyway, um, at which he presented them with this take-it-or-leave-it offer. He said, here are your instruments of accession. Um, You will have complete autonomy except in the areas of foreign affairs, defence and communications. Your internal administrations will be left untouched. Sign on the dotted line. If you don't, you risk... Uh, being overthrown by your own people, um, and th- there are other things as well. Uh, but basically, it was, you know, it was, um, you know, th- th- they were said this would be an offer that would never be repeated. Um, you can keep your titles. The king will still give you your honours, um, but you know, you must sign on the on the dotted line. And if you fi- and, and if your state is within the boundaries of what is going to be. Uh, uh, the Indian Dominion, it's in your interest to remain in that uh, dominion and not to accede to the other dominion, namely Pakistan. Uh, that was an important proviso as well. But uh, he had three weeks. So, so after that, within the space of three weeks, they had to get hundreds and hundreds of these states to sign on the dotted line and accede to either India or Pakistan. So let's talk about some of these, I guess, negotiations. Um, I mean, I think there, there are a couple that, that feature quite prominently in the book. Um, but maybe let's start with Hyderabad. How, how, how did the negotiation, and I think maybe there should be some quotes around that word, um, how did that negotiation for Hyderabad to eventually join India come about? Sure. Um, look, in... Mid-June, it was around about the 11th of June, three states declared that they would become independent after the transfer of power. One was Bhopal, another was Travancore, which was um, located in what is now Kerala, and the third was Hyderabad. And then there were another maybe dozen states that were you know, seriously thinking about um, uh, declaring their independence or possibly acceding to, to Pakistan. Um, uh, and uh, but but Hyderabad was was uh, uh, and then there was Kashmir too, which we'll probably talk about later, uh, which was equivocating uh, for reasons we can discuss. 
but but Hyderabad was uh, particularly uh, important um, for India because it was located really in the uh, in the Deccan. It was a uh, the second largest state uh, after Kashmir. It it had a population of around sixteen million um, at the time. If it had been an independent country, it would have been about 30th in the United Nations if in terms of uh, uh, ranking by uh, size and roughly the same by population. Um, it was resource rich, it was strategically located, and it had a particularly eccentric ruler, Osman Ali Khan, the Nizam of Hyderabad, who was also famously uh, the richest uh, man in the world. Um, so Osman Ali Khan had always seen himself as being above the rest of the princes. He was the only one who was called his exalted highness. The others were his highness, but he was his exalted highness and that was largely as a result of the um, aid that he gave the Allies during the First World War and also being the Muslim ruler of a Hindu state. Um, he importantly su supported the Allies when uh, they feared that India's Muslims might start supporting the Axis powers, namely uh, uh, because of uh, uh, Turkey and its um, uh, and, and 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 the Caliphate, um, but uh, so so he, for instance, he didn't join the Chamber of Princes because he didn't want to be um, told what to do by lesser princes uh, than he was. Uh, he wanted to be known as a as uh, the king of Hyderabad. And there could only be one king, and that was the British monarch. So the British quickly put a, a, a stop to that. Um, but but he, he was adamant that his state uh, would become independent on the 15th of August, 1947. And um, he appointed a, a British uh, lawyer, um, uh, Walter, Sir Walter Monckton, uh, to advise him, um, but he was also swayed by um, a, a you know this this movement that was emerging in Hyderabad. It was uh, uh, led by a man called Kasim Razvi, and uh, his followers were known as Razakars. And so it was it was uh, you know it was a sort of a, a grassroots Islamic movement, but it was which grew in size from about a hundred thousand to almost a million in the lead up to uh, independence. And, and, and Razvi was, was uh, kind of this firebrand leader, very charismatic, um, who, you know, wanted to, um, you know, for you know, Hyderabad to, you know, his aim was for Hyderabad to become independent. And both he and the Nizam thought that India's Muslims would support Hyderabad in this endeavour, and also post-partition, that Pakistan, Pakistan's Muslims would also uh, come to Hyderabad's aid. So it was, uh, it was, a, it was a, a, and, and there were numerous uh, attempts by Patel and Menon and Mountbatten particularly to um, sway the Nizam to realise that uh, uh, independence was a pipe dream and uh, to get him to accede to to uh, India. In the meantime, Jinnah was doing his best to woo Hyderabad as well and, and either for it either to uh, accede to Pakistan or, or to declare its independence. So, uh, and, and on numerous occasions, the Nizam was prepared to 
to compromise, and then suddenly, uh, you know, he 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 would change his mind. He was um, uh, always uh, equivocating, or there'd be a show of force by the Razakas uh, and Qasim Razvi's supporters um, uh, that that would force his hand to um, abandon. Um, any form of compromise. Eventually, there was a standstill agreement uh, reached just before independence. Uh, but, but technically, Hyderabad, um, you know, w- you know, remained as an independent uh, uh, state until uh, the Indian Army finally resolved the matter by invading in September 1948. And then you mentioned um, Kashmir as well in your answer, which I think is obviously very important for kind of understanding this kind of long-running dispute between India and Pakistan. Um, so what actually happens in Kashmir, well, in, in, in Jammu Kashmir, to kind of create this now decades-long territorial dispute? Yeah, um, well, Kashmir, so we, so you have Hyderabad, which is, you have a Muslim ruler ruling over majority Hindu population. In Kashmir, it's the opposite. You have a Hindu ruler ruling over a Muslim-majority population. Um, <clears throat> and that ruler was um, the Maharaja Hari Singh. Now, um, Hari Singh uh, was also suffered very much from uh, equivocating uh, too much. He, he dreamt of creating a Switzerland in the east. He thought that his landlocked state um, centred around them beautiful Vale of Kashmir, which I'm sure your listeners would be familiar with, with its lakes and houseboats and um, you know, uh, apricot orchards and, and poplar trees. I mean, it's a, it's a beautiful part of the world. Um, <clears throat> but, uh, you know, this, this was uh, – and, and, and it's interesting because uh, at one point Patel basically said to him, look, you know, you, you can – you know, Congress is not going to pressure you. If you want to be, remain independent, um, do so. Uh, you know that that's that's your prerogative, and you've got that right. But the problem was that Nehru um, was totally opposed to that, and partly as a result that Nehru was a Kashmiri pundit. So these are the, the pundits are the the, are the um, Hindus of of uh, of Kashmir, particularly, particularly around the. Um, Around Srinagar, uh, and uh, uh, so, so even though he, he his family had left Kashmir, I think it was sometime in the late nineteenth century, he still had this strong affinity for uh, for for the place. And as far as he was concerned, there was no way India was going to give Kashmir up. So things again, independence comes along. Um, most of the states uh, have uh, acceded to India. There are a few um, holdouts, um, Hyderabad being one of them, Kashmir being another, Junagadh is, an, is another important state that didn't uh, uh, accede to India. And then there was another dozen or so smaller states which, who, who, who just didn't go around to signing their instruments of accession. Now, that's a, a long and complicated story. But Kashmir basically became an independent state on the 15th of August, um, but uh, this was uh, uh, not going to last very long because there was a uh, an invasion by tribal militia from Pakistan. Um, 
some tacitly, sometimes overtly supported by uh, sections of the Pakistan military and government, and they were and they started marching on Srinagar, um, ostensibly to protect Muslims who were being persecuted by Hindus, particularly in the southern parts of Kashmir state. Um, and at that point, uh, India, well, again, this is it's a long and complicated story and a very con- contested one. Um, on the 27th of August, India um, started an airlift of troops to Kashmir. Um, and according to the Indian version, uh, Hari Singh had signed his instrument of accession just before that, realizing that, you know, if if he didn't and there was no Indian military aid forthcoming, these tribal militia from Pakistan would soon overwhelm Srinagar, capture it, and that would be the end of him as a Hindu ruler because he wasn't going to. There was no place for him in 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 a, uh, in a Muslim world, Pakistan, and would obviously unleash terrible, uh, you know, violence and, and, and killings. So um, then there are others who say that uh, he didn't sign the instrument of Kashmir uh, accession until after the troops arrived in in Srinagar, and therefore the instrument was illegal, and that's basically Pakistan's position. But yes, but then on it, it becomes a, it becomes an unholy mess. <laughs> uh, there's, a, there's armed confrontation between these two uh, newly independent countries and, uh, and the dispute over Kashmir, as we all know, continues to this day. So you mentioned kind of how the princes always couldn't really make up their minds. They sometimes seem a bit hapless in these negotiations. Um, and I wanted to ask kind of about the, you know, history doesn't lend itself to kind of saying who's right, who's wrong very well. Um, but, you know, India seems very overbearing in these negotiations, definitely threatening, definitely sent troops to enforce these accessions at times. Um, but the princes, I mean, India had a point that the princes were, did not represent their populations. Uh, they were at times, I think, pretty badly behaved. You note several times in the book how... Uh, they spent a lot of money. Um, I already said they were kind of hapless in these negotiations. Um, so how do you see kind of the, the principles at play in these negotiations between India and the princely states? Well, as far as India was concerned, as I mentioned earlier, you, you know, you couldn't have these outposts of autocracy existing after independence. And, uh, and, and so they, you know, there, there was a lot of pressure um, even though these states had acceded to India, um, there were there was some had some were quite advanced in introducing administrative and constitutional reforms and adult franchise and so on. But as I mentioned before, there were hundreds of these small states. I think uh, I think there was I think the figure was it was about three hundred states uh, with an average area of fifty square kilometers and an average population of maybe three or four thousand and there's no way that you could have efficient administrations in states that size so there was this tremendous pressure um, to uh, fix up you know to to redraw the map of India to merge these smaller states into larger units sometimes merging them into uh, neighboring um, provinces um, but uh, and 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 you can see the rationale behind that, uh, as far as you know the 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 leaders of a newly independent India were concerned. 
and and it's true that you know the 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 rulers had kind of buried their heads in the sand in the lead up to independence. They hadn't quite grasped what it all meant. What most of them feared, or what most of them knew, was that ho- that Congress was going to be hostile towards them, and uh, and and that they would lose their autonomy, that they would be subsumed into this. Uh, um, uh, you know, uh, new united India, but they had no real um, uh, idea, m- many of them, as to how to prepare themselves for this eventuality. Um, so they, they, you did have those who who said, "Okay, we're going to, you know, we're, we're going to declare our independence. We're going to accede to Pakistan, or we're just going to, you know." Um, uh, oppose oppose this this process in in whatever way they can. Um, so really, it was a, it, it was a you know you, you can see the Indian point of view quite clearly in this, but you but you also have to feel a, a little bit of sympathy for some of these rulers um, because one one thing that had been promised to to particularly the leaders of the larger states was that they that they would remain independent units so you would have jaipur uh say baroda gwalior uh these these larger states that they, they would remain that they would be states in their own rights they wouldn't be absorbed into larger geographical entities and and it's also worth remembering that congress had always um, its policy had always been to um, uh, enable the populations of these states to exercise their rights, to uh, decide for themselves whether they wanted to continue under princely rule or if they wanted, you know, uh, you know, like, like to have a sort of constitutional monarchy or to have uh, genuine democracy. Yet that after independence, that principle was totally abandoned. Menon and Patel, <clears throat> I think probably they were obviously spooked by what had been happening in India, the violence that accompanied partition, uh, the state that India was in at the time, I mean, the levels of poverty, uh, Ill- illiteracy. Um, there was a, uh, a war in Kashmir. Uh, you had... Uh, a state in Gujarat, in Gujarat Junagad, uh, acceding to Pakistan. You had Hyderabad refusing to be, you know, to uh, give up its 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 independence. So they realized, and and even and they they were even afraid that the border states uh, between India and Pakistan uh, were vulnerable to either infiltration from Pakistan or that they their rulers might uh, succumb to some sort of inducements and change uh, their loyalties. So that there, there were, you know, it was for them, it was a nightmare scenario. So they quickly set about trying to integrate these states into the Indian Union to, uh, you know, uh, change their constitutions. And this was all in breach of these instruments of accession that they'd signed. So in in, in a sense, it was a betrayal. Um, but, uh, you know, a, a, again, a mixture of arm twisting, sometimes the threat of force, um, uh, and, 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 and uh, also by using other inducements. So the deal would be you give up your 
autonomy. Uh, you give up your right to uh, 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 exercise authority over your internal affairs, and we will provide you with a privy purse. You will still retain various privileges, whether it's you can still import your Rolls Royces, you can still receive titles from the king, you can still fly your own flags on your palaces, which you can keep as well. Um, uh, And so in return for giving up their um, quasi-independence after uh, India became uh, a nation state, they would uh, uh, keep these privileges, but but otherwise become a part of India. So that's that's how they managed well, to do that. Well, let's talk about those privy purses. We've, we've talked about how India kind of changed the rules um, of these instruments of accession. Um, the privy purses last until 1970, well, un- until the 70s, when Indira Gandhi then um, manages to get rid of them. Uh, but I wonder if you might talk about how Indira Gandhi managed to uh, I guess end this final privilege for the for yeah, these princes. Sure. Well, look, the the privy purses were um, guaranteed under Articles two nine one and three six two of the Constitution of India, so uh, that they were enshrined uh, in, in the Constitution. They're, 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 so each out of the five hundred and fifty states that found themselves within the borders of newly independent India, I think it was about two hundred and forty eight of these states um, received privy purses depending on their size, the the income of these states prior to independence. And I think they range from around oh, uh, 10,000 rupees per annum, uh, which would be a bit difficult to put into today's money, but down to about 250, I think, was 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 the lowest, and that was for the ruler of Katodia. It was a tiny state in Gujarat, and he famously um, rode his bicycle to work to save money because the privy purse was so <laughs> was so minuscule. But um, it was also it wasn't just the privy purses; it was also you know the the the, the legacy value, the prestige that that uh, came with the purses and the privileges that they uh, retained. Um, but um, uh, Nehru didn't like them; uh, tried unsuccessfully to convince the princes just by by writing nice letters to them, basically saying, you know, you must do your bit for an independent India and give up these uh, uh, outdated uh, um, uh, sort of perks that, that we've, we've granted you, but that was to no avail. Um, he he dies in uh, 62. His replacement, uh, Lao Bahadur Shastri, dies in 67 in or 66, sorry, Indira Gandhi takes over the Congress party, Nehru's daughter, uh, and faces the um, uh, electorate in 67, and Congress suffers its worst defeat since independence. So there's a post-mortem, God, what have we done wrong? And the finger gets pointed, not entirely, but but, uh, to some extent at the princes who, following independence, have taken... Uh, a liking to uh, being in politics. In fact, I think about uh, of the larger gun salute states, I think it's from the 17 to the 21 gunners, um, half of those states field uh, candidates um, from royal families in state and federal elections. 
and they have a success rate of about 80%. Most of them are running against Congress, of course. And so, uh, and you know, so all these other political parties that are op- in opposition to Congress are, are you know, are falling over themselves to woo these um, uh, uh, princes uh, into their ranks. Um, now, this, of course, uh, uh, has contributed to this terrible performance that Congress has suffered in '67, and, uh, and and so, uh, to cut a long story short the abolition of the princely purses and their privileges becomes official Congress policy in, uh, in 1969. And Indira Gandhi goes to the 90, 1971 elections on this on this slogan of um, Garibi Hatao, abolish policy, uh, poverty, but also um, abolishing, we're going to abolish the privy purses and their privileges, and we're also going to nationalise the banks. So she was very much looking for, <clears throat> you know, these populist um, measures in order to win uh, as many votes as she could. She had tried unsuccessfully in 1970 to abolish the privy purses, but it had uh, she didn't quite have the majority at the time. Uh, he needed a two-thirds majority in the um, upper house in order to get that, and it failed by one third of one vote to get passed. Uh, then the president, she made the president issue a decree to um, declare the privy purses null and void. That was overturned by the high court. So in 71, she goes to the election saying, we're going to abolish these privy purses, which at the time, the, the expenditure amounted to something like 0.2% of the annual budget. And as one prince uh, remarked, it wouldn't be enough to buy a postcard for every Indian. Um, but um, she she achieved a thumping majority, uh, left the princes uh, waiting um, uh, for the final uh, kill. Um, and in December 1971, um, uh, the, uh, um, India's parliament passed uh, Constitutional Amendment Bill that uh, uh, basically uh, 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 that 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 marked the end of these titles, uh, 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 put the princes and centuries and thousands of years of, of royal legacy into the dustbin. So we've kind of charted the whole path of India's negotiations and relationships with the princely states. Um, but some go to Pakistan. How does Pakistan, does Pakistan treat its states differently? Although I guess the end result was they also got they also got dismantled. Um, but 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 what about Pakistan's negotiations with um, with these princes? Yeah, they, they did treat them differently um, because Pakistan uh, only ten states uh, found themselves within the borders of. of uh, Pakistan, and uh, they were all Muslim ruled with Muslim populations. So, uh, Pakistan, uh, Muhammad Ali Jinnah, you know, they didn't even bother to um, uh, 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 set up these instruments of accession until after Pakistan got its independence. And and by and large, uh, they didn't have too much trouble. There was uh, one large state, Bahawalpur. Uh, which was on the borders of which bordered India um, in in Sindh. It, its ruler, 
equivocated a little bit. I think he was just sort of testing the waters, saying maybe Congress might uh, might give me a better deal than than the Muslim League. Um, and because it was uh, contiguous with India, you know, technically it could have acceded to India. It was his right if he wanted to. Uh, but eventually he signed the instrument of accession and acceded to, to Pakistan. The holdout state was Kalat in, uh, in, in the west of Pakistan, in what is now, it's basically uh, Baluchistan. Um, again, your listeners might be familiar with with um, <clears throat> that, that part of of of, uh, of Pakistan bordering Afghanistan and Iran, um, so the leader of um, Kalat, Nawab Ahmad Yar Khan, um, decided that his state would declare independence, um, and based based largely on a treaty that Kalat signed with the with British India back in 1876 that the Baluchis read as being the sa- uh, largely the same as the treaties that uh, India signed with uh, states like Nepal. Like Nepal was not a princely state. It, was, it had this sort of quasi-independence. And uh, um, even though it, it, had a, it had a royal family and had a, had a king and so on, uh, so Kalat believed that uh, it was on the same footing as Nepal, and therefore it was within its within its rights to uh, declare its independence. Now, again, um, so it was a little bit of a, a little bit like a repeat of what happened in Kashmir. There were protracted negotiations uh, between uh, Ahmad Yar Khan and, and Jinnah. Uh, there was a, a, a British Prime Minister, Douglas Fell, who was also conducting negotiations, trying to convince Ahmad Yar Khan that, look, there's really, you know, you know there's no way that Kalat can maintain its independence. Um, he was presenting... Uh, although they had workshopped various alternatives, uh, Kalat might uh, join with, uh, might become part of Iran because uh, the Baluchis um, uh, were found also on the uh, Iranian side of the border. It might um, uh, accede to uh, Afghanistan, um, although they thought that this would not go down very well um, should um, uh, uh, the, the Russians ever get a toehold in, in Afghanistan and therefore they would have access to the Indian Ocean, um, which was quite prescient in, in a way. Um, but so they, they managed to hold out uh, um, until March 1948. And, you know, the versions, there, there are a couple of different versions of, of what finally um, pushed Ahmed Yakan to sign an instrument of accession. One was, according to Douglas Fell, his 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 prime minister. It was he who persuaded him to see the writing on the wall and uh, and join Pakistan. But Baluch nationalists believe that it was that this instrument was signed at the point of a gun. Uh, they claimed that uh, Pakistan was uh, already sending naval destroyers to the, the southern coast of of. Uh, of Kalat uh, preparing for an invasion, and that there'd been troop movements around the states, around the state. But one way or another, he he did uh, eventually did sign the accession, uh, but it was not um, the instrument of accession. But it was not accepted by everybody in the state, and there and following that, you had a uh, insurgency um, that was quickly put down by the Pakistani army. Um, 
uh, but you know, Baluch nationalism uh, continues to this day, as does Kashmiri nationalism, and you still get uh, um, uh, uh, a lot of violence in in that part of the world, and there's you know a lot of resentment over the fact that uh, uh, you know Baluchistan is uh, is getting a raw deal from uh, Islamabad, and uh, you know there, there is this sort of nascent. Uh, uh, pro-independence uh, uh, movement uh, uh, that's, that still exists there. So I guess kind of my, my last question um, is kind of, are there any remnants of the, of, of the princely states, of these families? Are there any remnants in the day? I mean, I know with like with European royals, someone will pop up and it's like, I'm the prince of so-and-so and I'm now an investment banker living in Zurich. Um, you know, so it's it's in one sense they've 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 fallen a long way, but they're also still you know pretty wealthy, living pretty comfortable lives. Um, I guess what about so what about all these Indian royal families and I guess the the things they left behind? How much of that is is still seen in today's in today's India? Look, it varies. Um, um, you know, some of your listeners may have, might have stayed in a in, in a converted royal palace. Uh, those who could afford it, uh, there are some terrific ones in you know, the, the Rambagh in uh, in Jaipur, the Lake Palace in in, in Udaipur. But there's, uh, I, I've stayed in some quite rundown palaces in in in, in the smaller states that are uh, maintained by by the families there. You know, but, you know. If, uh, on the smell of an oily rag, really. Um, it very much depends on the individuals. Uh, some, um, like the, uh, um, uh, the, you see, they still often they still call themselves the Maharaja or the Maharani or so on, even though the the titles have no meaning, no legal standing whatsoever. And and, and it's interesting because they don't, they don't in I think in Europe you would probably say the erstwhile prince of whatever. Um, uh, you know, principality he or she might have ruled over, but uh, but in India they're they're very much uh, still referred to by their uh, by 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 their ancestral titles, um, and uh, you know some have done well. They've done well in business. They've done well in diplomacy. They've uh, Hari Singh's son Karni uh, Karan Singh became a minister in Indira Gandhi's. Um, uh, government became minister for tourism. Um, uh, others not so well. Uh, some have entered politics and are doing extremely well. Uh, Dia Kumari uh, from the uh, Jaipur royal family won her uh, seat. Uh, she's now a BJP politician. Won her seat by half a million votes in the uh, 2019 election. Um, so it, it's it's very much you know. Some some of some have prospered and done well, but uh, I think I think the you know, I think if you look at say Jaipur and the Jaipur Royal family, and my one of my earlier books was on the Jaipur Royals, uh, you can see that they. Um, I mean, you know, Dear Kamari told me an anecdote about how even now, when she walks into a village, the villagers will put down. Um, would take off their coats or their scarves and lay them out flat on the ground so that her feet don't touch the the dirt, basically, because they still consider her to be, you know, um, a royal. And you know, and, and and I think it's 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 changing slowly, and maybe it's the older generation that are doing that, not the younger. But there was there was something about uh, the fact that. Uh, 
in the better ruled states, you know, people had uh, a much closer affinity with their rulers. So there was, you know, the the the, the the Maharaja might hold a weekly darbar where people could come and petition him about the, the problems that they were having or their grievances or what they perceived as injustices or get him to rule on a dispute and so on. So there was this kind of uh, closeness, this this directness uh, between the rulers and the ruled, which you just don't have these days where you've got... Uh, politicians sitting in Delhi, you've got bureaucrats in some office block, um, um, you know, probably not, uh, maybe not even from the area. Um, some might be good, but some might just be, you know, wanting to uh, line their pockets. Uh, so it, it, it's, so the, there is a, so they still have um uh, India's royals, they certainly, you know, if, if they want, if they choose to, they can capitalize on that legacy. Uh, not all of them do, but those who do um, can do it and do it well. Um, but, you know, in, India is a, is a, you know, it's a modernizing nation and this will gr- gradually fade. Those princes, those those uh, people from royal families who wish to uh, engage in the new India in whatever capacity they they'd like to, will be doing so on an equal footing with everyone else, and that's that's good, that's fair, that's what democracy is mm. all about. Well, I think with that, that's a good place to end our conversation with John Zubrisky, author of Dethroned. The Downfall of India's Princely States. John, I actually have two final questions for you, which are, <laughs> uh, where can people find your work? Not just this book, but all of your work. And what's next for you? What do you think the next project might be? Look, um, look, the Dethroned has been published in India by Juggernaut uh, and in the UK by Hearst. And Hearst has tie-ups with Oxford University Press and so on in in uh, in the US. So uh, it, it's um, but you know I, I think you can probably you know go to Amazon or A Books or whatever and get that and previous books as well. Um, House of Jaipur, which is still in in print, and uh, um, even my first book, uh, The Last Nizam. Uh, was recently updated and is uh, uh, in print in India. Uh, I, I'm looking, uh, I'm still toying with some ideas, but I'm fascinated by Muslim-ruled kingdoms that were in India at the time of independence, not from so much a political point of view, but looking at uh, at their courtly traditions. You know, the, these these state, the, the you know these states, and there was Hyderabad was one, um, Rampur, Bhopal, Junagadh. Uh, there, there was another, maybe twenty smaller states. Uh, you know, they were great patrons of the arts, of literature, of music, um, uh, painting, and so on. And uh, and I'm t- trying trying to get I want to get a feel for what connected these states. What was their contribution um, to Indian culture and society, and, uh, and and what became of the families as well. Um, so that that's 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 a project which is very much in its infancy. I've done a little bit of work, but I think it's an exciting one, and uh, I'm looking forward to to doing it. Hopefully, in the next uh, year or so. 
Well, you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at NickRIGordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsianReviewBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow them on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. And you can find many more author interviews at the New Books Network at NewBooksNetwork.com. We hope you subscribe to listening to Asian Review Books podcast now on all your favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends if you want to support us interviewing those writing in, around, and about Asia. Next week, join us for an interview with Susan Bloomberg Kaysen, also an Asian Review Books contributor, on her latest book, Bernardine's Shanghai Salon, The Story of the Douyin of Old China. But before then, John, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's been a pleasure, Nicholas. I've really enjoyed it.